Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, Personnel Growth and Personal Fouls. In our deep dive, the NFL is trying hard to make things equitable with respect to diversity in their management ranks. Are they being civic leaders or helicopter parents? And in our Courage or Cringe section, Eva Longoria, the NHL, and CBS. Do Hollywood stars have permission to speak on issues of politics? Do past abusers of diverse people deserve compassion or contempt? Is correcting for diversity in television casting leading us to a better tomorrow or resurfacing some of the very same vestiges of racism that we've been fighting against? This and a whole host of other things on this episode of TDR. Exciting show this uh, week, Jesus. We're not going to talk about politics, not even once. I- I'm super excited about that. That's actually <laughs> what I'm most excited although, about. Although I don't know if I can actually guarantee that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be tough. And I'm sure at some point we'll bring it up. But we're going to try really hard not to. And I think that's at least a starting point right now is trying not to. So uh, I think we definitely have some good topics for this week. The NFL is... Uh Always on the tip of our tongues. We've talked quite a bit about sports in general. Earlier in the summer, we had uh, a lot to say about what was going on there with the NFL post-George Floyd. And uh, they're in the news again very recently, and it's going to be the subject of our deep dive. Um, what's the story? Like, how should we start? Yeah, so the NFL uh, recently announced new plans to incentivize NFL teams to develop and hire minority candidates for head coaching and general manager positions. So specifically, what they said is they were going to award two third-round compensatory draft picks to teams that have minority head coaches or general managers hired away from their organization, right? So this is a case that if you, let's say you have a linebacker coach, a, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, so a, a coach within your organization that gets hired by a different team and becomes the head coach or general manager of that different team, then you, the, the, the team that lost that, um, that person in your organization, will get two third-round uh, draft picks, which is a really big deal, right? Yeah. So needless to say, this plan was kind of met pretty quickly with mixed emotion. And there's a couple of reasons why it was met with mixed emotion. First was from the people it was supposed to help. Now, these are sort of all anonymous uh, sources. I haven't actually seen anyone specifically being named uh, named in in the quote. But at least their their point of view is that many of them were not pleased that they were not consulted about the plan. And it was passed swiftly without any advance notice. And they also didn't approve of other people speaking for them when they were unable to provide input as to how the program would work, Mm -hmm. 
Which is a really interesting point, right? These are folks that are sort of already in the ranks of coaching. And, you know, their point is like, listen, A, appreciate to some extent that you're trying to do more things proactively to help increase some of the presentation of diverse coaches and general managers. But why not talk to the people who are actually impacted like, or br- in those roles? Bring us into it. Why not yeah. make us part of the, the solution? Because yeah. if there's anyone that could speak to it from a firsthand experience of what it is like, feeling like you're not getting enough opportunities is probably those same people. So that immediately seems like I'm kind just, of a miss, you I, know? I'm curious, just as, as an aside, even before we dive into the actual issue here, is how common do you think that is in, I mean, we know how common it is in media organizations. I just wonder, if this, does the same apply in your mind to kind of sports leagues that just simple things about, hey, we're about to do this initiative. Should we now, should we not consult you know, the kind of racy matrix we all learned in our experience or in B school, you know, about, you know, who's, who's responsible, who's accountable, who's consulted, who's informed. Right. That miss happens a lot in the corporate world. I wonder if it happens a lot in sports because it seems like that no matter what your opinion is on this, it would have probably been a good idea to consult the people that you're actually talking about. Uh, I, I agree. I think it's interesting in the case of the NFL, which is a league that is very, I mean, they're all run by the owners. Let's be honest about that. But I think the NFL has specifically has much more power sort of concentrated with the ownership, meaning that they are not as, I think historically they haven't been as player friendly as opposed to like the NBA, probably the other sort of extreme of that. I mean, I'm sure like soccer does a good job and other, other folks, but I'm just thinking about like the, the really big leagues. Um, so I could definitely see the case where even with really good intent, uh, you may be solving for the wrong problem or at least have the wrong solution or not as well thought out solution. And I think part of the challenge there you have just from a peer leadership standpoint is that your likelihood of buy-in of both the people that are directly impacted and the people that will be impacted on the fringes just goes down, right? Yeah. Like this seems like the kind of topic that would have been probably worthwhile to connect with folks that, are, that were diverse and also like head coaches and other people that are making those decisions. And I'm sure maybe those folks were at the, at the ownership level, but how deep they went there, just based on these comments, it doesn't sound like they went very deep. And and before anybody jumps to a conclusion that, oh, well, this is another example of, you know, Roger Goodell or people who are very wealthy and kind of detached, not knowing that they should be involving and talking to these people. This initiative, from what I've read, was driven in large part by Troy Vincent, the uh, head of football operations for the NFL, who is himself African-American. So I don't think we can blame a sense of kind of detachment or lack of connection right. on the on what the issues are. And to your point, we don't know exactly who's making these claims. I actually read um, an article from uh, from Jason Whitlock, who you and I have talked about before, um, you know, former Fox um, a sportscaster for a very long time, a former player. And now he's uh, one of two people over at The Outkick, which is a, a sports kind of a conservative leaning sports entity. And, you know, that was his big, his big thing was um, Troy Vincent. His big thing was like, hey, this seems like, you know, he attached a lot of it to him. And and he also made mention of some people that those anonymous quotes were specifically from African-American assistant coaches in the league, right? And the other articles we read, it's unclear who they come from, just sort of like these disembodied spirits. It's implied, though, that that the people that are directly impacted. So I I would think they're going to be assistant coaches, right? The people that will be more likely to get the roles of head coaches and general managers. Um, Yeah, I mean... Yeah, well, it's hard. To, it's hard to say here once again, but but I do think that there's something to be said about just in terms of overall leadership and and best practice. It's just better when you involve people in this kind of conversation, especially things that have pretty big impact, right? So we've talked about it from the perspective of the people that are most directly impacted, mm-hmm. which would be these diverse 
uh, uh, folks within these organizations that have the potential of becoming head coaches or general managers. The other thing that, that actually came into play here, which I thought was really interesting, is the impact that it can have on interdivisional play, right? So one executive and who the executive was, I, I didn't see in this article specifically, um, I think it was on ESPN that we're looking at this, uh, wonder whether the Dolphins would have been willing to hire Brian Flores away from the Patriots if it meant that the the, the, the Patriots would actually get compensated with two extra third-round picks, right? So, Brian, so just for those of you that don't know, Brian Flores is the head coach of the Dolphins and was previously the linebacker coach for the Patriots. Mm-hmm. And you know, and one we, of only two Latino head coaches in the league, by the way. Yeah, so it, it, it is. And by the way, that's a great point because mm-hmm. if you think about the competitive nature of some of these leagues, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, some of these, some of these teams, you know, especially when they're playing in the same in the same league, uh, it's on the same division. I'm sorry. It uh, it becomes a real issue. A it's real, a huge a issue. A real, real practical issue that you're basically stri- by hiring somebody away from your t- from uh, an opposing team, you are automatically strengthening that team. Now, you know, it's all for the good of the game and for the good of diversity and all that stuff. So you can you can sort of minimize the impact. But look, this is a super competitive league, and like people are hired and fired on the basis of their winning record or losing right. record. People start on the basis of how they you know the things that they did in the previous game. I mean, this is a it's a game. Of of inches and like you know right. millimeters so giving your your divisional opposition additional um draft picks in a moment where they wouldn't have those right, right. can make a huge difference uh, obviously there's draft busts but yeah more yeah. often than not when you draft somebody high um it, it's going to be the benefit of your team yeah, I mean, it does feel very counterintuitive, which is literally one of the quotes of one of the sources. It's counterintuitive. They're rewarding you for doing something that you should have been doing already, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I, I agree with that. I mean, look, the, the bigger problem here for the NFL is that when they when you look at the ranks of head coaches and general managers, at the beginning of the season, there were only four minority head coaches uh, and two GMs. Uh, minority GMs mm-hmm. out of the 32 teams, right? Uh, since the season started, though, there's been a couple of coaches that have been fired, and now you have two additional diverse uh, temporary head coaches, mm-hmm. right, that, that have come up. So even if you add in the temporary head coaches, so you say instead of four, now you have six, you're still talking about only 19% of head coaches in the NFL that are diverse, uh, 6% of the GMs that are diverse. And this is with a player base that is, you know, about 70% diverse or black specifically, right? Yeah. So a little bit higher than that, the diverse, but 70% black specifically. Um, so you do see like quite a bit of, of underrepresentation here in, in the NFL. And it's unclear to me how this, why this incentive, why give it to the team that is losing the staff and it, yeah, I, I don't understand it. Maybe right. you can like help it, me. It, yeah, it I places don't... the value at you being getting rid of of these folks who should be potentially elevated within your own ranks, in one way. I think it also right, like it actually incentivizes you to some extent is get your guys hired by somebody else rather than keeping them and, and getting and them growing, into higher, and growing them and growing them. I don't understand that at all. I'm very confused about the policy. It is well, it's because it's confusing and it's because it's it's a little bit, um, in, in my opinion kind of dopey. Uh, look, the other thing that's interesting here is this is part of a long discussion that's been going on with the NFL owners, um, almost a 10-month or actually a 10-month long discussion that um, started as a way to kind of boost the likelihood that teams would seek out and consider and hire minority coaches and executive candidates. All of that stuff is good. There was an original proposal that was actually tabled back in May that it was any team that hires a minority head coach right. would receive this big bump 
uh, in the next year's uh, round, right? Uh, and hiring a minority GM would also give you a bump, but even a higher bump. So you could move up six slots for hiring a coach and you can move up 10 slots for right. hiring a, a GM. And even that, I want to understand better why that's a premium over the over the coach. All of these numbers are fascinating to me because somebody at some point said, this is more valuable than this other one. And that to me is fascinating. But anyway, my point is that this has been discussed for a long time. The owners kind of set it aside. And now we have this kind of rebite at the apple. And what we came out with was this, which I think is very curious. I think it's unworkable. I don't think I don't think it's it sends the right message, but it also, in my opinion, kind of creates bad incense, bad behavior potentially. That you could like kind of um, merchandise, let's say, somebody or put them in a high level of visibility position, but you're almost using them as bait in order to get somebody to grab them for your organ from the organization because you know how much of a valuable benefit these kind of draft choices are. I mean, right. I know that's super in there, right? It's like novel level. But it's something that, I mean, again, this is a super competitive league and we're talking about millions of dollars and like, you know, tons of endorsements and all these kinds of things that come with these things. So, uh, you know, and we've had bad behavior in sports before. Newsflash. Yeah, yeah. It is it's it is part of a history of the NFL trying to figure out ways to increase diversity at the, at the head coaches, uh, head coaching roles. I mean, a little while ago, and I remember exactly the specifics of it. But what then they also have were whenever there were there was an open open slot for a head they coach, would they, they had to interview that's a the, diverse candidate. That's right? the Rooney Rule. That's been around. Right, I, I it's been around exactly for a while. For a while, yeah. Um, and, it, and that's you know, I mean, the you could think of it as well. You know, if you once again, if you take out the the two sort of temporary head coaches, still four out of thirty two. That doesn't seem like it's worked very well, mm-hmm. right? So I understand the idea of trying to create better incentives to really try to institute some of this change. So I, to some extent, I applaud the NFL for that. I just think here, we're ultimately the person that will get to decide who, like who they hire, and in the case, potentially hire a diverse, a diverse coach will be the owner of the team. They don't benefit by their the team that they're competing against getting additional picks, additional third round picks. It's actually a disincentive, I would think. To hire in this case, and I think the example of uh, of Brian, Brian Flores, Flores is a great example of that, right? Yeah. If you are the owner, and I'm blank right now, who the owner of the Dolphins is, right? Do you uh, really want Robert Kraft to get more third round picks after they've been beating the, you know, beating you like over the head for years and years for that team to all of a sudden get better? Mm-hmm. Especially what it kind of feels like they're having a down year, right? Like, sure, I don't want that. Like, and when you look at some of these specific candidates that we're talking about, right? Like, look at the Chiefs and their offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy, who, by the way, I used to watch play. Um, he played for the Colorado University of Colorado. What are the the Rock? Not the, the Rockies. The um, I'm you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, the, not the Rockies. No, what, 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 it's it's an animal. Forget I forget what it is. Anyway, we'll come back to us in a second. We'll, we'll uh, look it up. But yeah. anyway, Eric Bieniemy, who was a great running back, is is a super, super, super solid offensive coordinator and is considered a top head coaching prospect, right, for the NFL. And um, if the Chiefs, you know, win the Super Bowl, they defend the Super Bowl title this year, and you're a fan of the AFC, do you want to give Andy Reid and the Chiefs an extra, an extra, you know, third round draft pick if Eric Biennemi gets recruited from there to be a head coach somewhere else, right? It's like right. your Super Bowl winning team and we're strengthening them beyond that. That's right. I mean, I think the, the challenge this creates is that, look, when you think about the folks that will be, you know, potentially better uh, positioned to be successful at head coaches are people that are already are working within very successful organizations. And then they themselves are having a lot of success within those organizations. So 
it creates this dynamic that you're, you're right. If you are a diverse uh, ex- assistant coach in any of these really good teams, the likelihood of you getting hired potentially could be, like depending on how people, how much value they give to this, could be that you just don't get hired because people don't want to make that team better. Um, and that's a complete disincentive. I, I, that's why I was very, you know, when I first read it, I thought it was the opposite, which I would have had my issues with it as well, potentially. But this is like, I don't know what they were thinking in creating this kind of uh, policy for the, for the NFL. By the way, it's Buffalo's, right? Buffalo? Person. Yeah, that's what I thought it was, but yeah. I couldn't, but I wasn't sure. Because I could literally picture it, but I wasn't. I can see their helmets, yeah. yeah I always yeah, get yeah. Bison and Buffalo confused. But, um, but anyway, I think the other thing that's interesting to me, and this is, I, I definitely would love to, riff with you on this because you know I'm fascinated by the numbers. Let's let's look at the numbers themselves, right? And to your point, we've got a couple of interim, um, or I don't know if they're interim, they're acting or whatever. Maybe they end up being permanent, but you got some- Well, for now they're temporary, right? So at least we can say for now, they're for not- For now they're temporary. Let's, so right. if we go back to the start of the season, you basically had four minority head coaches, right? Right. And of those two, um, and by the way, I, I I I made an assumption earlier that Brian Flores identifies as being Latino. I'm not sure if that's the case. Maybe he doesn't. But in any case, um, you could say you've got three black coaches and you've got one Latino coach, or you could say you've got two black coaches and two Latino coaches. But whatever. Right. Identification aside, let's just take the the, the stance that you've got 32 teams, you've got three black coaches in the beginning of the season. That's 11. percent Now we know the black the black population is 13 percent of the general population, so it's an under index, but Relatively speaking, it's a slight one. One other head coach makes up the difference there in that in that in that calculus, right? Latino head coaches totally something different. You're talking about a huge un, uh, under index, right? I think it's like one out of uh, one to thirty two basically is the index. So there should be something like six or seven Latino coaches. But to me, the the, the problem with that is, I, I guess number one is, and I'd love your thoughts on this. Like, are these statistics driving this kind of decision making? And if so, when we reach parity, do we stop? Like, what is the so, using statistics yeah. for moral calculations to me is problematic, and that's that's why I want to bring it up. Yeah, but I think uh, the starting point in the case of teams, um, I don't think. Well, we we you and I use this a lot when we sort of look at you know how does it index versus the population. I don't believe that this is the right way to think about it for leagues, and the reason because the universe is just very different. When your universe of a league of the NFL. of that universe of players are black. I think you can turn around and and this and compare it only to the thirteen percent of population, right? I mean, so I because when I think about people that are become coaches, or people that are going to be in that world, and in that world, it's a world that is very much heavily indexed as being very black in terms of participation. So it would make a lot of sense to me that the head coaching and GM roles will be people that have been around the sport, and they should be more reflective of the population of the game rather than population of sort of general population that that is not necessarily involved with the game. But but let me let me just push back on that a second. Imagine if we were speaking of the inverse. So let's say this um, golf, 70% of the players are white, and we believe that that's really good rationale for why at least 70% of the executive leadership and the GMs and the managers and everybody else should be white. Well, I think they, but they are. Well, yeah, I guess you're right, right? I mean, part of it, part of the question here, so you can take it a, take it a step a step back. The reason why I would think that that's not right in the case of uh, of the golf would be in the, because I think the representation of- and By the way, in golf, it's probably not 70, it's probably like 90. Yeah, probably much higher than that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the reason why I would think, it, the reason I would have issue with it is because when you think about that uh, distribution of players by ethnicity, and you have such a low representation of African-American golfers, right? 
I think it speaks to the broader issue that why are more diverse people playing golf? And that's a big problem for the league, right? For, for, for the tour. Mm-hmm. And I think I will start with how do you address that point first rather than address it at the, um, at the ownership level, at the GM level? I think you should to the degree that that actually impacts the representation of the, of the actual like, players. In the case of the NFL, I guess you could make an argument that there should be a lot more other types of, of players that maybe it shouldn't be 70% that are black. Maybe maybe it should be only 40%, right? So to some extent, maybe it's way over-indexed in terms of black players there. But then you, you really start to, 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 to think about is, well, what is required to get more representation from other groups into the NFL? And, but I don't think of it as a, la- as a lack of opportunity in the case of the NFL, right? I don't think mm-hmm. it's an issue where... For example, you have white players that, I guess, a little bit less than 30% because you have other other groups in there. 28 or something, I think, yeah. But I don't think it's an issue it's that... It's a tiny percentage. It's not white or black, though. Tiny, tiny, Yeah, very tiny. tiny. So let's, let's say it is 30%. Yeah. Okay, just, just for Pacific the, for, Islanders, like it, 1% or 2%. There's like, no, there's like one Latino, there's the one way, Asian I, I guy. I think in terms of over-indexing, though, that would be really interesting to look at, look at is people that are Pacific Islanders, how, does they, how do they... In terms of the NFL relative to the population, it will be great to, to on sit. a percentage basis. I would think it's actually higher. It's a maybe it's as high an over index as the black as the black. Right, population. That's what I'm saying right because uh, the black population is five and a half times the national average. In yeah, the, yeah. In, 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 and my guess is, I don't know what it is, but it's like it's it's it it's mills. Is, right? It's tenths of one percent Asian uh, right, Pacific right. Islander. So here, I guess the question for me would be: Is look if we're talking about like about thirty percent of the NFL players being white, mm-hmm. is the is there an issue of lack of opportunity of white players to be to be to get into the NFL? I just don't think that's the case, right? I mean, I think it's more of a function of. of I agree with you, but but just I want to just because I want to tackle one thing you said before we move on to something huh? else. But I do agree with you that I think broadly speaking that is not the case. I do think that there's some evidence to at least suggest some level of limitation for other race players in certain positions. We'll get into that in a second. But I just want to go back to the Uh PGA example, because I think that the universe of opportunity should not be seen as the players. I think the universe of opportunity has to be seen at a bare minimum, our our, our society, our nation, our culture, that should be the universe of opportunities. Because if you make the universe, the, the athletes, then it's hard for me to, at least from a purely logical and philosophical standpoint, try to understand the differences between the logic that would apply for the for football that wouldn't also apply for the PGA Tour and somebody saying, look, this is who the players are. Like, I mean, we need to have the management and the executive leaders and the coaches representing who the players are. 90% are white. We should have 90% of them. I think that you would be like brutalized for having that kind of opinion, mostly because I think it'd be wrong. And I think that the same is true in reverse. I think that, and that's my initial challenge with what you said. Um, I, I do think that there is your solution for the golf thing to me is precisely the solution here, which is I think the NFL is trying to solve the problem at the wrong place. I think in the wrong place, meaning if you've got 70% of your population of athletes are black Mm -hmm. and you have a tiny percentage, it's actually, I'm using tiny just to kind of go with the flow here on a percentage basis, it's 11 or 12%, which is a slight under index to what the national population is, but whatever, let's just go with it. You've got 70% of your athlete population are black and you have very few black uh, coaches, assistants, otherwise, and even less um, executives and GMs. My question would be, why is that happening? When if you look at the white GMs, uh, like John Lynch for the 49ers, or you look at the coaches, you know, Andy Reid, these are all former players. So yeah. they came from the player pool. So what is happening that if you've got 70% of blacks who are not moving into these roles, like there's something that's happening there. I, and, I, and it's like, you can't say it's a demand issue. I mean, a supply issue, sorry. The supply is huge. 
So what's the issue that's happening at the player level that we're not routing these folks into these prop into these tracks? That to me is a much bigger issue than trying to give somebody draft picks because they happen to hire somebody from an opposing team. Uh, yeah. So well, we agree on the draft picks. So we could put that one aside. I think that we don't, I think we don't fully understand why that's the incentive, and I think it's giving the incentive to the wrong mm-hmm. side of the equation, et cetera. Right. So, but going back to what you, what you just said is that there there definitely is an issue, right? In terms of when you see that much representation in black players in the league, and then it doesn't translate to coaching representation, right? And especially at the, at the top, top level and, and head coaches. But when you say that they're trying to solve the wrong thing, the, I mean, it's and look, we're, we agree that it's the wrong solution. But what they're trying to potentially incentivize is more opportunity for diverse coaches so to me, it is the right place to try to solve for it. I don't agree with the solution that they that they that they. Well, wanna, then maybe maybe. See what I'm saying? Like, like yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I maybe it's the right place. Maybe it's just the wrong. Um, it's the wrong approach. You can talk about well, like how do wrong, you create more like let, training programs? Sure. How do you create more of a pipeline so players, more players can translate to coaching? 100%. More of those. Yeah, I, I get. That's, I get all that's, that. That's my point. Is I guess in 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 the. If you look out at the landscape of the things to prioritize and sequence to chase in order, like thinking of it as a business person, we've got a sea of opportunity and a sea of challenges. Where do we begin? To me, the where do we begin is we have, you know, there's a 53-man roster on every team. There's 32 teams, about 1,500 players. Of those 1,500 players, roughly 70% of them are African-American. Why are we not incenting or what is the issue? Are they not being invited? Are they not interested, by the way? That could be a newsflash. Maybe they don't want it. I don't know. But like what's happening there, you could say, well, they don't have to come from the player ranks. Okay, great. But the ones that are not black do more times than not come from the player ranks. I think the majority of coaches come from, look, at some point, of course, you get those that pretty early on um, are like not going up to uh, up to the NFL because you have some some coaches that maybe in college they sort mm-hmm. of stop playing there or never even make it to the NFL but then go down the coaching route. You could have some of that, but I think those are the exception rather. They than are. Rule. They are. I think the majority and, of people that we're talking about are going to be people that have tons of firsthand experience in actually playing the game, which means that I think the player pool is a great sort of place to look at. And you're right. You have to sort of think about like what's actually happening. Why aren't they getting those opportunities? And I think part of the question here is that. That'd be my first thing to which, tackle which is all Which That'd is my number one. Why aren't folks getting enough of the opportunities? <laughs> so I think they're trying to address that. Part of it, which the previous address, the the the, the, the Rooney rule, I think what it's called, right? Correct. Where they were like, okay, well now every time you're going to have an opening, you have to you know interview as part of that process at least one diverse candidate, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I get that, right? You get kind of get more exposed and therefore that creates more opportunity. But what we're seeing here in terms of head coaches, like that hasn't worked. So when you say that, it's such a small number, four out of but 32. What, but what hasn't worked? See, I'm not convinced anything has actually happened in order to work. That's the, my point. The, the Rooney rule of, well, well, of actually including as part of your interview process for head coaches right. to have to interview one diverse uh, candidate. And that is precisely my point. That, that hasn't worked that, in the sense of yeah. actually getting more, more head coaches um, to be diverse. And, and I agree, I mean. but I think that hasn't worked as kind of precisely, at least it helped, I think it helps bolster my case, which is that is attacking the problem at the point of interview, at the point of entry. It's like, there's something that's happening way before this, that that like people who are seven out of 10 of the players who could potentially, maybe not all of them, but some significant portion could be decent candidates right. for these coaching positions are either not being invited, they don't see it as an opportunity themselves, or I don't know, something, something's happening. You know, you can't say they're super, you know, the the, the non-black coaches are just because they're, you know, have some other kind of education. They, they all kind of have the same education. Right. They all kind of, I mean, I don't, they, don't, they have different backgrounds potentially, but that happens in every field. Yeah. So I'm just saying like, that to me is a really interesting thing. 
to get out there and like, how would we tackle this in business? We would ask them. Like, I would love to do the sample, the survey or whatever for the NFL and ask the players, like, would any of you consider a coaching career? If not, why not? And like, actually do the study, like find well, out from that pool. What I would start with will be is actually better understanding the dynamics of hiring first first time assistant coaches. What is the what does that population look like? And I'm sure, by the way, I'm sure if we if we look at it long enough, we'll probably find it. But I think that's the starting. If you think about it as a, you know, you and I think about things about in terms of funnels, right? If you think about the funnel, that is the starting point into that coaching route, right? It doesn't happen that often, although we'll talk about it in a second because the NBA literally happened that way, where people completely bypass the entire assistant coaching process. You go right into a head coach. First time, never coached before. That rarely, rarely happens. I don't think in the NFL, I can't think of one example. Maybe there is one in the NFL. It has happened in the NBA, uh, but not in the NFL. So the question would be is that when you think about assistant coaches, that pool of new first-time assistant coaches, what does that pool look like relative to the population of players? Because that's where they're coming from primarily, right? And if that already at that point is significantly under-indexed for black candidates, then that's the starting point of the problem, right? And part of the starting point of the problem could be very tied to, well, you know, you and I talk about businesses that look many times, people do hire people within their own networks. The same thing in the NFL. Same like how many, I mean, you know, coaches, assistant I'm coaches sure. that could travel with, with groups. So when you go all the way to the top and you have sort of a, you know, uh, the same kind of coaches, same kind meaning like mostly white and part of it comes from who they work with. I mean, it could be a situation where that's where, you know, a lot of the root problem actually is, is that you don't have enough diversity there to begin with. So therefore people that get hired are not as diverse enough. But I would start in unpacking this problem at that level, this first time assistant head, assistant coaches, what, what do they look like, right? And even take a step before that, because it could be a case of like, look, people that are scouts. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the what is the trajectory people take uh, into coaching, if it starts immediately into coaching or starts at maybe a scout or something else. Whatever that first level is, sort of step one, I will start there and try to figure out but that requires how already, you know, if there's already a gap at that point. Because if there is already a gap at that point, then you can start seeing where, where it breaks down. But that requires the the data. That requires the analysis yeah, of actually sure. asking and going, okay, what are our best use cases, right? Let's look at the winningest, um, you know, head coaches that exist, right? Um, you know, and there's plenty of examples of that. And you can see what track that they follow and then kind of figure out those best practices. But I also think it's really important to ask the player population about what their aspirations are with respect to to um to coaching and entering or scouting or whatever the first you know kind of entry track is yeah my sense is for a lot of for a lot of these guys there's this moment where it's my football career is beginning to fade coming from the player pool i mean and the professional player pool i'm kind of beginning to fade i start looking out at is there a broadcasting opportunity for me is there a um, coaching or some GM kind of opportunity? So there's a moment where that kind of career begins to maybe fade, that something is happening where maybe the majority of the black players don't feel that that's an opportunity for them or they haven't been invited or whatever it may be. But I think really trying to get at the insight of when that happens and then attacking that moment would be significantly more effective than either the Rooney Rule or this um, new thing that's come out. Yeah, the one thing I would say though, from what you've, I think you're you're either saying or you're implying it, um, which I don't agree with, and without any data, by the way, I'll be the first to say it, which is that when I think about that player population, I have I really doubt that that player population for black players is significantly different in terms of their interest of wanting to stay involved in the game and going down the coaching route, meaning that 
if we're saying 70% of the players are black, my guess is that you wouldn't look at that and do this assessment like, oh yeah, but only 5% of those guys actually want to coach. But for everybody else, for all the 30%, like, you know, 90% of them want to coach. I, I just don't believe that will be as stark because that's the only way that you would explain the differences in, in head coaching all the, all the way to the top yeah. of why it's so different between head coaches that are that are diverse and those that are, that are not diverse. Definitely I'm not, not sure what the number that. would be, but I'm, I'm simply saying, yeah. like, when I look at this, all things being equal, even if they're not all equal, it's just there's such a big difference right now representation that it can be simply that the players don't want, that the black players don't want to go into coaching roles. What I found in my experience, because I definitely don't believe that, um, what I found in my experience is one of either two things or both things are happening. One is generally a lack of invitation. So people not being invited to consider things. That's one. And the second thing is a maybe lack of visualization, meaning I don't yeah, see the see person. Yeah, so yeah. I kind of don't even think about it. It's sort of out of mind. You know, out, right. of, out of sight, out of mind. So I'm not, a, I'm not attributing anything nefarious to it. I'm just saying that that my point is, if we ask them, we might be able to find out. Well, and maybe as a as a point of contrast, why don't we talk a little bit about the NBA and what they've done as far as this this mm-hmm. specific issue, right? So uh, over the summer um, or late summer, maybe September, there was um, big news that came out of the NBA when Steve Nash, uh, who is Canadian and white, uh, landed a head coaching job. Um, without basically um, having any actual experience of coaching, right? And uh, and this really sort of kicked off this whole the discussion around basically black coaches getting passed up for these for these head coaching jobs, right? Now, because of him, like this is, once again, in the case of the NBA, is a little bit different. They're actually even more heavily indexed for black players. They're, for the NBA, is about 80% of the players are actually black. And it was interesting with Nash, he has, once again, had no coaching experience, not even as an assistant, uh, and yet was bumped up to be the the actual head coach of the... Um, actually, I'm blanking right now. Who is it? Is the... Oh, I should know this. Oh, I feel terrible. I should know this. Um, but in any case... Oh, the Nets. That's what it was. Sorry. It was the Nets. Uh, so he got bumped up to be the head coach of the Nets uh, and replaced the interim coach, uh, Jack Vaughn, uh, who had been, you know, interim coach, uh, you know, especially during this this time with um, the whole, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Nets playing in the bubble, who they actually did fairly well, at least for the games that they I think they played like 12 games and did surprisingly well for the for the team and where they were. Uh, Vaughn was actually asked to stay as the team uh, lead assistant, but it's a good example of a case where you have this interim head coach that was black, Jack Vaughn, with a lot of experience in coaching. And got you know basically uh, Steve Nash, who is a legend by the way in the in the game, but is a legend in the game as a player, right? For over nearly two decades, he was one of the greatest point guards, two-time uh, MVP, yeah. Hall of Famer, and more importantly, I think one of the things that Steve Nash has kind of given credit for is that he was one of those players at the forefront of that transition of the NBA game from being very much focused against centers and very much about you know post play, but one about a lot more mobility, three-point shooting, and Frank, awesome player. He played for the Suns. He, he played for the Mavericks. Uh, great, great player. And I think it was always one that I think is considered to be a very smart guy and understands the game really well. But it does speak to the issue about all of a sudden this guy who with no you know coaching experience gets put into, put into that position. Now, do you just out of curiosity, do you think that the ownership um, has the uh, is able to make that that determination based on their own guidelines, how they view what they want in their kind of head coach, or are you arguing that there should be more of a uniform set of requirements for NBA coaches that would then kind of level the at least the the experience requirements for actually having that role? Well, I think what I'm speaking to is the the difference in dynamics in the NBA and the NFL. Okay. Right. On the one hand, um, 
I think the the NBA, first of all, the NBA is much more African, considered to be black, 80%. Yep. Their coaching staff, only seven of 30 NBA teams are are black uh, or people of color, not necessarily black, because you have like Filipino, which is for the Miami Heat with Eric Spolstra. Uh, also, one is Hispanic. So let's say, you know, seven of 30 are actual diverse, right? Mm-hmm. So about 23%. So mm-hmm. you have 20% of your NBA coaches are diverse for a league that is 80%, 80%. black, yeah. right? To be clear. And then you have this example of Steve Nash, which, by the way, I'm a huge fan of Steve Nash, but a guy that with no playing, ex- with no, I'm sorry, no coaching experience whatsoever gets put in this position. And it does bring up this, this interesting topic, which is if the league really is trying to address its gap in diversity in head coaching jobs, this is not a great example of of doing that. It actually shows the kind of the little bit of the inverse, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe we could all argue that Steve Nash is so such an awesome player, and he has such great insights. Well, yeah, that he I, should bypass the entire process and actually, to some extent, contribute to the problem rather than make it better. I see it a number of different ways. Number one, I fundamentally do not agree that good players are good coaches. Like, because I see that in the business world all the time. You know, oh, this is our best salesperson, and so he gets promoted to be, uh, you know, VP of sales, and just is a person who can't lead, can't deal with complex issues. Maybe great on the front line. Maybe great carrying their own quota. Awesome. You know what I mean? So I've seen those situations where people, because they're, you know, very, very good at a kind of frontline discipline get automatically right. promoted or the assumption is that they'd be good at that. And that's just fundamentally not true. So I agree with you there. I disagree with you on the whole idea of 80% black uh, player population. Again, we should have, the, it's a bad move the you, moment. You disagree with the stat? No, no, no. I disagree, <laughs> I disagree with that being a, a driver for, you know, so therefore we're- Teasing you, Charlie. <laughs> doing that lately I don't know what's going on but um, no I just I just, I think that the universe should be set broader than that right I just right. don't think that that's a good thing because again you can make the case in the other direction and that would be wrong so um, mm. so I, I don't agree with that and look I think in this case again you know I definitely am much more libertarian perhaps in terms of, of you know private teams private businesses private you know, situations. This is a little bit of a private public thing in the sense that it's sports. So it has a big cultural influence and role to play in, in society. So maybe it's a little bit different. But, I, you know, if these guys want to hire this this person, they believe that he's best for the team and he's the most qualified. I think they should be able to do that. And I think that they should lose if he's not. And then that would force them to actually do something different. But but so so my calculus is a little bit of a hybrid of yours in the case of the NBA. But, um, but I, I do want to get to one last sort of part of this NFL thing before we move on. By the way, but but yeah. with the NBA, I'm not questioning their ability to do it. Of course they can do it. Like that's not really the issue, right? You just think it's wrong that they do it. No, I, it's not even that that I think it's wrong that they do it. I just think that the NBA specifically has been very vocal of trying to address some of the diversity issues that they have as it relates to coaching. But yet when you look at action by so teams you're saying it's, a it's, bad look. it's very it just doesn't support that yeah right and it creates a dynamic where well if you really are, are looking to do that it feels odd to be able to 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 basically bring this this player without any play any coaching experience you can't even say it like that like someone that has actually coached before to become the the head coach now the nba does have a history of doing this right of actually bringing in players to become head coaches without any experience the two I could think of right now, and I was kind of going back to see other stats. Without I, any coaching I, experience. Without any coaching experience, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the ones I could think of, and you know, for those of you listening to me that know the NBA even better than I do, maybe you could think of more, or, or I may even be wrong, would be Jason Kidd and Derek Fisher. Now, it is interesting, right? These are, the, these, are, these are all the same position, right? So these are all point guards who are very used to run offenses on the floor. So you can see that there's a there's some rationale there that these are like player coaches and all three of them really did play that role. Mm-hmm. So I can understand people making that sort of that leap. 
but neither Derek Fisher or Jason Kidd had good like coaching careers. Like the, the history in my mind, maybe and someone, sure someone can look at this better than I can and, and prove mm-hmm, me wrong, mm-hmm. but I don't think the stats are not on their side of taking someone that has never coached and put him in a head coaching position and then that being a successful, a successful combination. Thing. Even when they were great yeah. player coaches, right? I, I, Forget I, the fact about taking people that were like really good players. Yeah. By the way, the other one I could, maybe, um, actually Magic Johnson would have been probably one a, a while ago. I don't, I don't recall... I don't recall if he had any assistant coach, but I don't think he did. I mean, Matt Johnson was just too big. Like, no one was going to hire him as an assistant coach. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that's also <laughs> probably. If they tried to hire him, I don't know if he would have done it. Yeah, he yeah. would Yeah, he wouldn't have done it, is yeah. what I think. So that's probably the only one I could think of. And that was also a pretty short lived situation. Didn't work out very well. So in my mind, when I think about the sort of the dynamics, you have a history of this formula not really working that well. Mm-hmm. As a league, and I'm saying the difference between as a league and then decisions by teams, right? As a league, you're saying you want to address some of this, some of this issue. But as a team, at least in this specific case, I understand the comment like, hey, it just doesn't look like you really are trying to address that issue. Maybe it's all just talk and you're not really trying to do anything. Yeah, I understand it. that. Although it makes me very nervous to think about that because then it just feels like we're, 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 we're looking at all of these moves on the basis strictly of race and that makes me very uncomfortable. I think that I agree with everything that you said. Well, look at it in terms of experience. Maybe th- that's my, forget that's race my for a point. second. I, that's like, my point is it shouldn't even get into this level. It's an unsuccessful formula. You've got examples of the past where it hasn't worked. I've already I've already told you my personal opinion philosophically that this idea of if you're good at doing X you're going to be good at being a leader of people doing X I don't agree with that so for those reasons don't do it it's like I I feel like when we get into the situation of well it's a bad look okay maybe it is a bad look but tell me you know at what point is there a point in time when it would not be a bad look like it's just it's in other words two years from now is it cool if they do it then after they've done other things, three years from now, 10 years from now. Yeah. It just seems like a like a tough calculus to make these kind of decisions. To me, it's like, it doesn't work, so don't do it, um, is a much more, I don't know, clear, clear cut way to decide the issue. By the way, the, the one thing to also to add in terms of what the NBA has tried to do to address this problem is they did, in July, they named their first ever chief people and inclusion officer. So our Oris Stewart, um, who was already leading many of the league's diversity efforts, um, basically was brought on board under this role. And with the name of codifying policies to hire more people of color in and around the league, right? And there has been some progress. So this summer, three teams hired black executives to be their general managers, Troy Weaver in Detroit, Mark Eversley in Chicago, mm-hmm. and Calvin Booth in Denver. Also, when you look at the actual, there was, an, 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 a, I guess, a report by the Institute of Diversity and Ethics in Sport. The NBA League's office staff has about almost 40%, 39.4% of people of color which is significantly outpaces all the other the other leagues. So they are doing, I think, quite a bit already yeah. to try to address some of this problem. And even when you think about from head coaches, they are significantly higher than what the NFL is. But uh, but it was an interesting comment in terms of what came up with um, with Steve Nash. Okay, so here's an interesting segue based on exactly what you just said. What was the name of that person? Sorry. Uh, oh, the the, the diversity and inclusion person uh, that they just Oris hired. Stewart. Oris. Oris Stewart. Okay, sorry that I didn't know Oris Oris's name, but I we, I I I didn't know we would be he's, talking he's about the chief this. people and inclusion officer. Perfect. I okay, so, so here, bit, awesome. I love it. So so here here is um, <laughs> my controversial additional question because it ties back to what I do want to bring up about the NFL, which is a point you earlier made. Should the scope of this diversity officer new is it first time? I assume first time. Yeah, is, there, is that role of chief league wide inclusion officer is the first ever? Uh, now he was already leading the diversity efforts of the league, so it just wasn't in that sort of chief role, right? That that what he that what he has now. So should the scope of this of Oris's new job with the NBA include a um, a part of trying to diversify 
or to make more representative of the country, the player population? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's actually, you know what? I would say yes. No, but I, and I, I take it back. I don't think his role is to do that. Do I think the well, league okay, should? I guess do I think not, the league, right, right. No I, one person is responsible. Right, right. My point is, but, should it be in his scope of thinking? Uh, you know, I would, I would answer a little different. Do I think it's in the scope of thinking of the leagues to have better representation of communities across the board, across the country, which I think is really what you're getting at. To I would the, say, the, yeah, the, the player population should be. should be more representative of the population of the country. Yeah, I think I, right I, now it's not. I think the leagues should try that. Yeah, of course. I, I definitely think the league should try that. It's just that my, the argument I was making in the case of, and I'll probably make the similar kind of argument in the NBA as it is in the in the NFL, is that the lack of representation from other groups, I don't think is because of lack of opportunity. If anything, when we think about where sports has gone, and we, you and I, from, a, mm-hmm. from obviously from some other venture, we talk about this a lot, is that sport has become a lot less accessible, but it's specifically for diverse people, right? Including African Americans, right? Is that it becomes so much more expensive? You have travel of teams; course. it becomes way, way more expensive. You don't so, have the spaces to so play. So the lack of representation by Anglo players or by white players, I don't believe, and this is taking a very blanket statement, is because of a lack of opportunity in earlier stages in their life of getting actually access to the sport. Well, so that have you said that should the leagues be looking at be it, looking, thinking about it, figuring out ways to? Yeah, of course, of but course. Let's, but let's not minimize the the degree to which even asking that question is controversial, right? In other words, like if you've got eighty percent of of players who are black, a lot of folks might say, "Well, that's good, that's winning." You know, we're we're doing great there. Like, let's now focus on the executive ranks in the gym, and I agree with that. We should then focus on those. But my question is just fundamentally about if the driving force here is to drive equity. If the driving force here is to make sure that these populations are more reflective of the country we live in, we haven't achieved that with the player population in the NBA. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, I mean, yeah, I'm sure it could be controversial for some people, but look, I would love to see more Latino players, both in the NFL and, and in the, the NBA, right? Yeah. The last, last one I could think of is um, uh, Nahara, right? Nahara uh, from mm-hmm. the Mavericks. And that was a while ago. Uh, that was Mex- Mexican players, as matter, a matter of fact. Um, and there's some more. This is some some European players as well. And you do have some representation, especially international. And Mark Sanchez, who could forget? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Sorry. Uh, that's uh, for the NFL, right? Yeah. You're talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So play for USC. Uh, but it, then but the Jets. It, but it does bring up butt fumble. Not the, that I'm st- oh <laughs> sorry. You just brought up a whole bunch of, of things that it's came like up. Memes before uh, memes. No, but I, look, I think you're right, and I do think it's a it's a responsibility of the league to continue to find ways to get you know, better representation at the player level. Uh, going back to what we're talking about with PGA, that's exactly the problem that the PGA has, right? The PGA's problem isn't that they're overly represented at the at leadership levels that are white. I, I Obviously, you need to address that, but their much bigger problem is that it's not represented at all in the players. And it starts there. If your players are not at all diverse, like, it's an issue yeah, with fandom. It's an issue with their, it's, from. it's all an issue that sort of starts from there. Like you have an issue with with who the fans are for the for the sport when they, they don't even see themselves in the sport. So, I do think you have to start there. Um, and I agree with you. I think more could be done in that area. But based on what the dynamics that are, are right now in the leagues, I definitely can understand and support the idea of of better um, balancing out the, the level of diversity that you have at more more of those leadership positions in, in the league itself. For sure. And then bringing us back to the NFL, just one thought that I've been holding in the back of my mind, which I do think is worth talking about um, before we move on to uh, Courage or Cringe, is that there has been a specialization of, or it's, that's the wrong term, there has been the reality of certain positions um, in the NFL and in football being basically for the last you know period of time exclusively played by by black athletes right so as an example the 
um, cornerback position. Defensive backs in general, and I was one, right? But um, in recent decades, the cornerback position has been played exclusively by black players, and the running back position, overwhelmingly so. There's no white cornerbacks in the NFL. The last one was actually um, a guy who I remember watching play for the Giants, Jason Seahorn. I don't know if you remember that name. He ended mm-hmm. up, like, uh, he married, like, some daytime uh, actress or something. But anyway, that was the last guy who wasn't black, who was white, who, who played cornerback as an example. And I'm, you know, I'm really interested because I agree with you fundamentally, philosophically, and just logically, realistically, there's no issue in terms of access to the opportunities. Nevertheless, it is fascinating to me that some of these positions, running back, cornerback especially, and even other things, right? Like the center, I'm going to try to find the stat, but um, um, uh, whites slightly outnumber blacks in the makeup of offensive linemen, 49% to 46%, yet the center position is 82% white. Like those things to me are- Yeah, I don't know. Are super interesting. Like- Maybe that's another show, but I'm just thinking like there may not be discrimination in that sense, but what is it that is driving those situations? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know how much of it is is like, you know, history in terms of, you know, coaches that are that have coached a lot of white centers and they have some level of confidence there in terms of like their ability to be able to. I don't know, play the position. I mean, historically, when you think about quarterbacks, that's the other sort of, the other extreme of the situation, right? Is that that for a very long time, way over-indexed way in terms over. of, or, of or white Or punters and kickers right now to this day, place right. kickers and punters, 100% white. So, so, that, so that's a, you know, sort of interesting dynamic. I think part of it is also self-selection in terms of some of the roles that, that people want to play, a position that people want to play. But why wouldn't a black kid self-select to be a punter? That's my point. Or to be a kicker. Or to be a center. If I'm a good de- offensive lineman, I, I don't know. I also think when I think about who, I, I don't know, Charlie. I think part of it could be just simply what are the positions? Look, the positions that are most fun to play or most like you talk about quarterback, you talk about running back, right? And then mm-hmm. if you're in defense, it's either linebacker or, or corners, right? Those are going to be like your more sort of fun positions. I think you get a lot of people that want to play those positions to begin with. I, I don't know, but I think it is it is an interesting dynamic to look at why in certain certain cases. For certain positions, they so overly index in one direction versus another. I think in the case of quarterback, to me, is the most interesting dynamic because the quarterback so historically have been looked at as a position that is a very cerebral position, and that's a place where I think a lot of black players definitely got knocked on. This one, I think, I think there was a clear racism there where mm-hmm. some black players would just assume that just not be smart enough to play it. And I'm really glad to see how those dynamics have changed over time. And part of it also redefining what does it mean to be a good quarterback. You can be mobile and be a good quarterback, right? And you don't have to sort of come from the same sort of lineage that you see a lot of times from some of these quarterbacks to be able to be successful in that position. And when you think about the best quarterbacks right now, they are, yeah, I mean, I would say, look, if you, if you, you can still, I guess, make an argument about Tom Brady, but, you know, you got to think about Patrick Mahomes, right? You got to think about, um, um, for Seattle, I'm blanking on his name right now. Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson, yeah, right? yeah. These guys are awesome, right? Well, and I think that definition just mm-hmm. just evolved quite a bit. Is, I guess what I'm saying. Well, that is actually a much better representation there. And maybe we can close out this segment with this because that actually is a very historic um, stat, which is at the start of this season, there was over 30 percent of the quarterbacks in the league that were starting were either black or had black ancestry, right? Were mixed race. Um, is that the highest ever? The highest ever. Cam Newton, Teddy Bridgewater, Dwayne Haskins, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Kyle Mur- uh, Kyler Murray, Dak Prescott, who got injured, obviously Tyrod Taylor, who also got injured, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson. So it was like a, a and, ton of... And what's interesting there is you have some of the best quarterbacks that are... That are well, I think black. that's, I think that's the interesting they, I think point. they are very much the best quarterbacks. No, right. But I, but I believe, I don't want to... I don't s- know about Cam Newton, but... <laughs> just well, me. 
Yeah, I mean, well, you don't know about Cam Newton. You've got Tyrod Taylor in there, too. Yeah, I don't know who that Dwayne is. Dwayne Haskins. I mean, no idea who that is either. <laughs> and that, there, therein lies the point. Um, anyway, but um, okay, yeah, I uh, agreed. So I think we're. Um, I think the NFL thing is interesting. I think they're trying. If I had to put them in a category, I'd, I'd put them more in helicopter parent at this point yeah. than maybe valiant civic uh, leader. Um, but uh, but good uh, good conversation on that. And um, you know, I'm just glad that people are playing sports again um, and yeah. the football is back. All right, let's move on. Jesus, courage or cringe? We've got. I don't know if we can do this uh, fast. Hopefully, we we'll, can. We'll, yeah, we'll try to go kind of fast. Let, let's here. go. Let's go kind of quick but on this. Yeah. You want to you kick us off? Who's sure. first? So Eva Longoria is the first one to show up in our Courage and Cringe section. So um, Eva Longoria uh, recently took out to social media late on Sunday to clarify some comments that she made in an interview on MSNBC that were constructed as downplaying the role of black women in helping Joe Biden win the presidential election, right? So Longoria was being interviewed by Ari Melber uh, about the impact Latina women had on the presidential race. So she said, and I quote, Women of color showed up in big ways. Of course, you saw in Georgia what black women have done, but Latina women were the real heroes here, beating men in turnout in every state and voting for Biden-Harris an average of three to one. So, of course, that comment immediately got a lot of sort of pushback. And what comes off as downplaying exactly what I said earlier, right, of downplaying the role that black women specifically played is like, no, 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 we are the real heroes kind of, you know, kind of comment. So on right. Sunday evening, she came out and she clarified her remarks and apologized uh, through a tweet. And, and she said, look, I'm, I'm so sorry and sad to hear that my comments on, on MSNBC could be perceived as asking or as taking credit from black women. When I said that Latinas were her- heroines in this election, I simply meant that they turned out in greater numbers and voted more progressively than Latino men. And that's what she was, the comparison she was making a three to one, mm-hmm. which is when you read her initial quote, it's not clear. That's exactly what she's saying. And she says, continues to say, my wording was not clear and I deeply regret that. There is such a history in our community of anti-blackness in, in, in our community, that, and I would never want to contribute to that. So let me be very clear. Black women have long been the black backbone of the Democratic Party, something we have been played out in this election as well as in previous one. Finally, black women don't have to do it all alone, all alone any longer. Latinas, uh, many who identify as Afro-Latina, indigenous women. So basically saying, look, together we're unstoppable, nothing but support. And you deserve a standing ovation. So that was the main sort of issue there. Now, the other point of relevance mm-hmm. in this conversation is that Eva Longoria here is not just simply a celebrity that is expressing her opinion. Because I think there's definitely something to be said about that. And she's also the co-founder of an organization called She Sepueda. And the aim of this organization is to help Latinas leverage their power, not just in their own lives and families, but also within their communities mm-hmm. and in the voting booths. And this is an organization that was very active and, and really pushing for the Latina vote. I saw their stuff around them all you know, all over the place. And they have some pretty heavy hitters as part of that. Both people that are in the industry and celebrities that came together, started this organization. And it was a big effort in their part to get out the Latina vote specifically and, and very much in, in the line of, of supporting uh, uh, now President-elect Biden. And she se puede, for those who are um, Spanish challenged, is a play on the famous uh, political chant, si se puede, right. just using the she um, to replace the word yes in Spanish. And it's like, yes, it can be done, or yes, in this it case, can be she uh, can be so done. So your point is that she's not just a celebrity. She's somebody right. who's actually, she actually is involved. active mm-hmm. in a lot of these kind of of, of causes. She also spoke, uh, Mary Wright says she spoke in the, um, in the Democratic National... She did. Uh, yeah, convention, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 she did. Well, she, 
I mean, she kind of emceed it, sort of. Uh, yeah, I don't know if yeah. She spoke. So she's pretty. She's been pretty active, and, and has an actual organization specifically. Yeah, she's been very active um, on this. I also, you know, did a little bit of digging, and she was called out by a number of people, but she she kind of became especially. Um, she was especially called out, or whatever you want to call it, by a um, a handle called Latino Rebels, um, which has been around for a while on Twitter. Their kind of job is to kind of you know point out all of the. Um, the gaps and inequities that exist with respect to Latinos. Ironically, they're not called Latinx rebels, which I found fascinating given that they are, you know, um, don't, don't <laughs> move, move on. I thought that would be, I think that'd be, <laughs> that'd be really uh, interesting to ask him. How come they're not Latinx so rebels? Your, your take on this. Oh, you're going to make me go first. Yeah, of course. Um, I did the whole intro. So you gotta, so look, you gotta, I had to actually, your point of view. I actually had to look up the, um, the, I guess the progenitor of this term, because I'd heard the term many times before and I didn't actually know the attribution, but um, the term is the revolution devours its children. And it is from an 18th century political journalist, actually the pioneer of political journalism and a guy who was very much against the French revolution, a guy named Jacques Mallet Dupont. That's my best French uh, pronunciation. But the quote, the revolution devour its children, like really rang prominently in my head, right? Because here's a person, to your point, not just an actress, somebody who's very active and supporting all of the causes that would tell anybody with a set of like, you know, frontal lobes or frontal lobe that this person is for black women and for, you know, if for no other reason, even if she's faking it because, which I'm not suggesting she is, but if for no other reason that that is her stated position in everything she does, it's like, I'm for black and brown people, I'm for black. Nevertheless, this desire for purity in ideological, um, you know, and especially Twitter conversation leads you to, you know, there's a lot of like dead bodies along the way. There's a lot of travesty and she's one of them, right? She goes out and she says this thing, which is not that it was, I don't think there's anything even wrong in what she said, but it clearly didn't reflect exactly how she felt, right? She misspoke. I think she in, misspoke, yeah. In her own in her own estimation is my point. In right. her own estimation, she misspoke. Right. And nevertheless, she's completely torn apart. It's like, oh my gosh, not an ally. Oh, this and that. And I read the whole uh, Latino rebels. <laughs> it was uh, it was verging on the comical is how, how aggressive this stuff got. Right. And like, here is the people that, you know, in a way you're sort of fighting for and fighting with, turning around and shooting you in the battlefield. I mean, and it's like, to me, it's just, it, it's definitely cringe, 100% cringe. The whole thing is cringe. The fact that she apologizes cringe because then she had to apologize about the apology. I mean, it's just all these over explanations. The bottom line is that... Um, but you're putting cringe on just the entire event that it, that it kind of all The happened. entire event, right. the entire thing. I think, like, you know, on a personal level, I think that I would really have to struggle with whether or not I would have apologized. If that was my position, if that was my statement, if that was... And I had the history that she has and the things that she's done to go out there and say, oh, no, no, you misunderstood me. It either means that, like, nobody's paying attention to anything that you're doing or something else or there's something nefarious afoot so like right. it almost feeds it but my my reason why it's cringe most of all is because the revolution devours its children all of this desire for woke purity all it does is create victims along the way and that's the reason why principally i'm against it um yeah okay that's that's fair your I, turn yeah my turn uh you know i think um I kind of said it a little bit already, which is I think that Eva just she misspoke, right? In how she said it, and I think in part of the sort of excitement about what happened with the with the, with the election, she frankly misspoke, and I think she was very clear to to clarify that. So 
I, I understand the um, a little bit of the reaction to it. Look, the reality part of this is I don't I see it by the way a lot less as a sort of the left woke movement in this case. I think it, to me it has a lot more to do with social media. Um, you know, just just reaction to headlines more than anything else. Um, and in in this case for her, you know, I think her coming back out and clarifying her comments, I think was important for her to clarify her comments because it was taken away from the work that she was doing. And I think what happens in these kind of elections, look, and I think we've been talking about sort of the last couple of weeks and we weren't going to talk about election. We're going to talk about just a little bit, just in the context of you get sort of two camps. You get one camp that will tell you all the things that how what's to blame or what's to give credit for and is always treated as very singular. Oh, no, no, no. It was this group that delivered the win or it was that group that delivered the loss. And it's, I think part of the challenge is that. And I think this is a perfect case where in the case of trying to celebrate um, having voted and, and supporting the Biden-Harris uh, uh, campaign is like this statement that she initially made does come off very much as, no, no, it was us, the one that really delivered the win for, yeah, for them. Yeah, Because of the word real in it. C- correct. You and could I think have just that's, said heroines. Of course. So I think that could have been a completely avoided with better yeah. word usage. And that's why I had no issue with her coming out and clarifying her, her stance. Because in her clarification, she's still saying, listen, like, I'm giving credit to black women specifically and how historically they've done all this work. And now you have an ally. And now we've really mobilized this group. And we did it so well that we completely like beat out Latino men. And they did. Latino women in general. We talked about this before. They have. They were a lot more supportive uh, about getting uh, um, Biden and Harris elected. It's a rosy. So that's why, well, yeah, that's yeah. why when you, when you think about that, for me, it's like, first of all, you, you're someone that is that has the ability to speak about this because they're actually involved. It's not mm-hmm. just a celebrity just, just you know, coming out the, at the end hour and saying, look, look how awesome we were in supporting this. It doesn't bother me as much about the fact that she came out and 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 clarified her statement. I think it's important to clarify her statements, and that's why I put it more in the I put the 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 secondary part of this in the courage of her coming out and just making a clarifying stance. I do agree that it's terrible that we don't give people the, any benefit of the doubt. Like that is cringe to me. Like that part of the reaction, overreaction, and literally taking away all the work that this you know this woman, this group of women have actually done to try to support. Uh, women in general, and that this, I guess, of course, mm-hmm. with them Latina women specifically. That's why I put a courage. I put her response to the issue in courage. The issue itself, it's, it's, um, yeah, it bothers me. Yeah. Um, well, I'm with you on that. And then the other thing that I would just add, kind of last point on this, is that the reason why I find it so, um, you know, so difficult, this whole idea of what I kind of perceive as the kind of purity of these opinions, is that it's so easy to fall out of step with anything that you say, right? Even in her apology, think about this statement, right? Black women don't have to do it alone any longer. Like, what about Dolores Huerta? What about Cesar Chavez? You, what do you mean they've been doing it alone the whole time? Like wow. even that, right? If you if you if you if you get into you can't these win. kind of yeah, you can't win. But that's my point. Yeah, no, that's I, my I hear point. That. It's assuming the negative intent. Why would you assume negative intent? The woman's clear pos- position was: it's great what black women have done. I also want to shine a light in what. Latinas have done because it actually bucked a trend that w- that was perhaps even more impressive. And what and what's wrong with saying that you think it's more impressive that trend than the other one? Like that that's my point is we've gotten to such a point of fastidiousness with this kind of language and if you really take it to the end g- goal even the apology is something that's suspect. Yeah, I mean you could always pick the stuff apart and it's it's tough. I mean it's I think it's a reality of the world that we're living in right now which is 
all of this sort of uh, reaction and he happens in Twitter and people are taking a headline, and, you know, it, it takes stuff a lot of context and it's just it's just unfortunate. I mean, the thing that I would say is I, I was impressed with the level of organization and rallying that these these women did, including Eva Longoria, around this organization, Sepuede. And it, I do think it made a difference. And that's great. And but I that's... think it's, it's good to celebrate that. I think it's too bad that it came off that way in her initial comment. But, you know, she clarified and hopefully we could all move on. All right. Let's us move on. Yeah. <laughs> We're moving on to the NHL, the Coyotes. So the uh, an interesting story here in the Coyotes, right? So the 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 Arizona Coyotes, which is the NHL team in, in Arizona, renounced the draft rights to Mitchell Miller. Uh, who was an 18-year-old drafted in the fourth round, who had a history of bullying Isaiah Meyer Crothers, uh, a black classmate with developmental disabilities, right? So according to a report in 2016, Miller and another classmate had tricked Meyer's, uh, tricked, you know, this kid, Isaiah, uh, into licking a candy push pop that had been rubbed in a toilet urinal. Uh, also, um, uh, Isaiah said that Miller used to call him the N-word and frequently hit him. Mm. Right. The Coyotes said they were aware of Miller's history and planned to work with him, but later said that they learned as they learned more about the incidents, they decided to renounce his draft rights. So they basically took it away in terms of drafting it. The second thing that happened here is Miller was already committed to the University of North Dakota, which initially had said that it planned to keep him in his hockey program, but later actually cut him. Right. Which is said, like, look, you can still come to university, it's great. But, but you're, you're not, not gonna play hockey. You're not gonna here. play hockey, hockey here. So that's the long and the short of it. So, All right, what's Charlie? Now it's, no, 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 no. Charlie, right, tell you're, me. You're going to go first this time. Uh, I want to hear, hear about it from you. Unless you really yeah, want yeah, to. Yeah, no, 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 it's okay. Uh, I mean, look, when I first read this, it's, it's uh, on the one hand, I think about, this is an 18-year-old who just got, you know, his dream kind of crushed of playing in, uh, in the NHL uh, for incidents that happened uh, four years before, right? Um, which meant that, you know, when he was basically in eighth grade, Right. And while I do not at all condone his behavior and bullying this kid, not only diverse, but this kid had like, you know, other major issues here and what they were basically bullying, right? And I think that's kind of the broader issue about bullying. I, I feel like there was a lesson to be learned here that could be treated as an example of mm-hmm. redemption and how to be able to handle things that either the Coyotes or in this case, the, North, the University of North Dakota could have could have done with them and use them as an example. So by the way, to the degree that he's willing, and this is the part that is not entirely clear to me because at least according to the article that we saw here on, I think it was on Business Insider, I forgot what the, what the publication was. Um, you know, while he did apologize of the incident, there was nothing mentioned in terms of him actually apologizing to the kid that he was doing all this, all yeah. this too. So we don't know if there's more to the story in terms of him really being sorry for having behaved this way, even if it happened when he was in the eighth grade. But if I assume that he that he actually really was, was you know, just realized the mistakes that he had made, I think there could have been a very positive story turned out of this, of him using that kid to actually work on addressing bullying issues with kids that are just like him, that maybe had some development issues, that maybe had some anger issues with him when he was very young, and, and being a role model to kids that are actually going through that, both those that are, that are bullied and the both that, that also are bullying themselves, right? So I just feel like there could have been a significantly different way to handle this. And I think cutting him off at this point, the way that it's done, um, I'm, I don't I don't like that idea at all, to be perfectly honest. And this is why I put it in the cringe category. The only caveat I would, I would put here is that it just wasn't as clear to me that he really did sort of, you know, had a had a, a, a come to heart in terms of of really, 
feeling bad for what he actually did. It wasn't clear from the from at least the, the commentary that was included in the, in the article. Well, so then you and I have achieved a 500 average because I'm going to agree with you. So we disagreed on the first one. I'm going to agree with you here on the second one. And by the way, to be clear, the, the courage or cringe applies to the actions that the coyotes took. This is not about whether or not we found what this young man did when he was in eighth grade. Correct. Yeah. We both agree. And anybody with, again, any kind of sense and goodwill would agree that bullying anybody is always bad. So we're not, um, you know, attributing it to, to, to that, but specifically what the coyote said, there is a couple of, there's a, there's a, I went really deep on this one just in terms of the research. All right, let's hear it. You've been proud of, you've been proud of me. Cause, uh, <laughs> um, I, I didn't. So you're going to, I think, well, there's a, there's a, there's a, a chronology piece that's important here. Number one, first, the coyotes actually did draft him and they did accept him yeah, and they sure. did say not exactly what you said but around what you said which is look we've looked at this situation these people do extensive background checks character checks all that kind of stuff on these folks they came up on this pretty quickly and by the way this wasn't just like an an allegation from kids in school or parents who get out right. of whack with other parents this was a court case yeah, yeah there yeah, was yeah. a judge who adjudicated this is a um this young man actually, um, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, confessed or whatever, like agreed with what was right. done. He got something like 25 hours of community service. He had to write an apology. There was somebody else who did it with him and that person also had to do the same thing. So this is like above and beyond the realm of like a schoolyard spat, right? This is like a deeper thing. So that's number one. Number two is, I'm sorry, number number one is they knew it, they accepted him anyway. And then then what happened is, they basically connected with the family of the young man at some point. Now, there was a lot of press on this. There was a lot of Twitter activity on this. Um, some uh, NHL you know, athletes and people got involved in this. There was a lot of friction coming sure. up to this, right? And that caused these guys to take a look at it again. And it was then after taking a look at it again that they decided basically, quote, they had learned more about the whole uh, you know, matter and basically rescinded the offer. So that's number one. Or the the big important point. The second one is that the Coyotes are the only Latino managed and Latino owned team in the NHL. Yeah, and the CEO of the of the Coyotes is leading or chairing the diversity and inclusion task force for the NHL as well. So there was this added dynamic of wait a minute, it, like not only did this kid do something bad, right? But he did it against a black kid. And here you are, you're the Latino owner and you're part of this thing. What gives? It kind of brought the heat up dramatically. And it was at that point that he basically, they rescinded that offer. So those are the only couple other things that I wanted to, to ask. But to, in to, that, to and when you looked at the family of the kid that was bullied, yes. was part of the, the, the equation here, right? Like they actually yes, were still correct. very vocal The mother about, wrote a letter, right. a public letter to the Coyotes that got picked up by people and retweeted by everybody that basically said the point that you made, which was through all of this, this kid never apologized to us. The other kid who got convicted or whatever, did come back and say he was right. sorry. This kid never did. That seems to be the big issue with the I think the that's the problem. I think that right. is the problem. Yeah. So here again, this is my point, right? Uh, so I agree with you that it's cringe for, let me give it to you in two reasons. Reason number one, which is the big reason, is we have to be very, very careful about all of these kind of things. We all... Like we need more compassion. We need more opportunity for restitution. We need more opp opportunity to make things right. And we can't hold all of our past sins, whatever they may be. And in this case, it was horrible, but also sadly something that we have a lot of experience with and something that is not super uncommon and that people do regret as they get older. So we have to be very careful that, to not judge people 
for the actions that we did when we were 13 years old and hold them accountable to that forever, which, which I just have a real problem with that. Yeah. Uh, so I think we have to be, a, we have to be compassionate. We have to forgive people when they do something. So that, you know, that for me is, is kind of the, the, um, you know, the, the principal issue why I find this uh, kind of cringy. And then the second one that I find is cringy is I can't help looking at all the pieces and not find that there was some kind of political calculus in this. Like, because we initially said, yes, we know everything about this kid. Then we get a lot of pressure and you're, you're right. We said, no, I mean, either have the courage to stand by your initial convictions because you knew all the stuff. Right. Or like, at least be honest you about drafting to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Or at least acknowledge, Hey, we're letting him go because this is a bad look and this is stupid. And we want to be like, we want to have you guys have confidence in our ability to look at black versus white issues correctly or whatever. And even if you disagree with that, I'm saying at least that's honest. So to me, those are the two reasons why I find it cringy. But in, in just the way you described though, can you see the scenario where even knowing this, knowing everything, you can look at the court transcripts and everything, but the dynamic of the parents of the kid that was bullying coming after the fact and, and being very, very proactive and pushing and say, hey, this kid is not like, he's just not a good person. I mean, not only does this happen, yes, at that time, but not once has there been like a real act of contrition. Not once has there been any beyond what was court ordered, any like real sh- signs that he actually felt bad. Like I could see how that would get slipped in the, in the original sort of uh, assessment about the situation and then coming up and then change dynamic. I do agree with you though. It's hard not to think of that being also some political motivation associated with this and because of who the kid was and using racist terms like that definitely in this day and age i think it also makes it much more and especially for a league to be perfectly clear that has struggled with racism right and i think that's the other dynamic that you it's a powder keg yeah you look at so i don't i don't even necessarily disagree at the end of the day with the outcome even though i just i wish this could have been handled differently i feel like it could be an example but the x factor here is the kid in my mind is that if you even at this day and age like i have a hard time believing that they could have. I'm sure they could have talked to him. But hey, listen, like the way things is going down, you're gonna get cut, right? We're gonna we're gonna put we're gonna basically rescind our offer to you. There's a couple ways that you can play this out. You could just you know let it let it go, etc. Or we can proactively go reach out to the family, do some together of making a real commitment. I, I just really hope that that conversation happened. And if it didn't, I think that's well. Even more, some of it is actually revealed said. in what he actually said, right? The, the, he, in his uh, apology, right? He says, "I'm extremely sorry about the bullying incident that occurred in 2016 while I was in eighth grade." Again, these people are so young. I mean, yeah, even yeah, the fact yeah. that they're in the NHL at 18 is like yeah, insane I know, to me. I know. So um, he says, "I was young, immature, feel terrible about my actions at the time. I did not understand the gravity of my actions and how they can affect other people. I've issued an apology to the family for my behavior. That's the part that's kind of contested. I don't." Right. Now, completed cultural diversity and sensitivity training and volunteered within my community with organizations uh, such as Little Miracles. Over the past four years, I've had a lot of time to reflect and grow, and I'm grateful for the Arizona Coyotes for taking a chance on me. I promise not to let them down. Yeah. I mean, to me, and I know I'm reading that with a little bit of effect, but nevertheless, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but nevertheless, like let's yeah. take people at their word that he's sorry that he did this, right? Yeah. But here's my here's my last point on this, which is the biggest cringe of it all. It seems that the parents issue, and rightfully so, of the kid who was bullied, okay? Having been bullied myself and kids who've been bullied, like, I get it. Look, their big issue was this kid, at least to us, even if he thinks he apologized, he never did. 
Even right. if he thinks he did, he never did. If you put out a public statement, it's not the same thing as having a personal Correct. conversation. Correct. Actually, so yeah. you're the CEO of the Coyotes, and this thing is blowing up. You don't turn to this kid and go, hey, it might be a good idea for you to go and apologize. Maybe have a reconciliation. Maybe sure. have that be the moment where we can kind of heal. That doesn't happen. It's all managed over PR. It's all managed on Twitter. Yeah, but now you can't speak to that because you don't know that. That, okay. that, that you don't know. Okay, and you're right. I mean, I mean, but it feels that way because it feels like there was enough time here from the time that he was drafted to when this when when he got when he when he got released that that could have happened. It doesn't seem as though it, that the the easy path was was explored by on the basis of what I know. So you're right. I don't know for a fact. Thank you for calling me out on that. <laughs> sounded awesome though. It sounded awesome. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I do think that. Um, that uh, that's what I would have done. I, I think we agree. I would have hoped. We agree that that that, that would have been a, a better path. We would have hoped that that would have been the the right course of action, and that he would have gone either from um, you know he himself have, have reached out to the family directly, had a conversation, or that the team would have organized something to make it a more powerful moment of reconciliation, and 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 use them as a actual use actually that dynamic of both of those kids as a uh, as an example of of how to be able to really look out for these issues around bullying 100%. both from the perspective of the victim and the one you know doing the actual bullying 100% um all right last one so we're we're batting 500 as soon as see if we can take our, our average up <laughs> CBS diversity pledge so the network said uh recently that it's un- in uh, the network said it's unscripted shows including the uber popular survivor big brother and love island will have cast at least 50% black, indigenous, and people of color beginning in the 2021-22 season, Mm -hmm. right? In addition, CBS vowed to commit at least 25% of its annual unscripted development budgets to projects created or co-created by minorities and set a target of 40% 40 uh, representation in the writer's room next year as well, right? Mm -hmm. So... Big commitment in terms of casting, big commitment in terms of development, and also representation in writer's room. Um, just to follow up on that, so the CBS Entertainment Group president and CEO, George Cheeks, uh, said the reality TV genre is an area that's specially underrepresented and needs to be more inclusive across development, casting, production, and all phases of storytelling. And this is basically what, what CBS is doing. Now, CBS does have a history and has come you know, before, uh, before under fire for some racial controversies on, on its reality programs, especially with Big Brother. Uh, house guests were slammed for making basically racially charged jokes about a fellow Asian house guest in July of 2019, so last year, and there was also an inward controversy the year before. So there's some history there of having some challenges with, with diversity, and here at least you see some very tangible, very direct action of how to address it, both in casting and funding and also in writers. So this, one, this one was, a, I'll start. This one was a toss up for me, for sure. I know I have to land on one side or the other because those are the rules of the game. So I will, but it was a toss up for me for a couple of different reasons. I think it's um, it's all wor- always worthwhile, as we've talked about many times, to have your, um, you know, to say it in a kind of crude way, your product, and in this case, content is the product, mm-hmm. to have that be reflective of the audience that you're trying to reach. That's always a good thing because it, it's, 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 it's right and it's also good for business. So I don't object to that. I always, I do think though, and the reason where I think this was a 51-49 for me, okay, but it ended up 51% on the cringe. So I'm going to be consistent all across the board, I think, on cringe for all three. Uh-huh. Um, but the reason it did for me is because we focus again on the what instead of the how. The what is the, I'm going to have this number of people in the cast as number of creators. That's awesome. How are you going to achieve that? 
What exactly are you going to do to change to, to, to change your process? How are you going to engage with these people so that you're not doing it so that you can make this press release real, but you can do it as a funnel way as a fundamental way to understand to to re-image or reprocess the way that you work for the benefit of the things that I mentioned, having a, a, a you know content that's more representative of the country and also having more successful content. Like that's the part that's missing. The the percentages to me completely arbitrary. Why is it fifty percent cast, twenty five percent creators, and forty percent writers? Who came up with that? What does that mean? What is that based on? No explanation. And here's the last point that I'd make. If we spent, because I'll answer my own question in terms of the how. Let me let me answer my question in terms of how I would do this. I'm just gonna walk away and be back. In, You'll be back in, in give 15 me a, minutes. Give me a cup of coffee while, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. while you're out there. <laughs> if we focus, here's what I would do. I would source, um, you know, in terms of cast, I would source rural and urban, college educated and not, religious and unbeliever, U.S. born and immigrant, proficient in English and not, and the rest would take care of itself. What we're doing here is we're looking at people's skin color to determine what something is. Right. And I think there's a name for that, sadly. And it starts with an R. So I that's why I don't like this. It's a cringe for me. All right. Um, I'm not even sure <laughs> I told you I did research this week. I'm not even sure what to say. Jesus, I did research this wow, week. Wow, I'm yeah. impressed. Um, look, I, I think that here's what I like about it. I'll tell you what I, what I like and what I don't like. Um, I like that it's tangible things that they're committing to do. I also like the fact that they thought about it not just from a casting, because I think many times we kind of get focused on simply that representation based on what we see. And it is important to see that, of course, in the case of some of these shows. But in terms of the what projects actually even get funded, who are the folks that are writing in the, in these in these different projects? I think all that has a direct effect of what are the stories that are being represented on air. Right. So I like the fact that they were very at least intentional of having clear goals to watch each one of these. I sort of give them a lot less of, you know, heat in terms of the how, because in many ways we're talking about here an announcement of objectives, not necessarily an announcement of new process. I think announcement objective will be much more powerful to your point, where it actually comes with and we're going to go about doing this exactly this way. But look, the way these things sometimes come off and you know, PR agencies get excited about what the headline is. I could also see a case where there maybe is a very comprehensive plan behind this. At least I hope there is. Um, and, but that stuff is sort of you know, meat and bones and not as interesting as the, the tagline or the headline of what you know, they're gonna go out and set to do. So that it's sort of, you know, I'm not as concerned with it. I, I do, I'm, probably, I'm more in your, in, your, in your camp as it relates to when we think about the 50% representation, um, it be really be, be entirely sort of focused on 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 shade of color and, and ethnic background. Um, I do think it's I think it has the right int- intent, but I think it is going to end up falling short or be more representative of people in general and who the population is. If part of the goal here is what we talk about is to have the inside look like the outside, or in this case, have the content look like the audience is actually consuming it, then I do think it needs to be a little bit more intentional about creating that that kind of dynamic. Uh, in general, I think it's a good sort of step forward. Um, and with these things, what happens, I think, is you, you get these overcorrections, right? And I think that's maybe just maybe a little bit of an example of that. Overcorrection, even with good intent, uh, some of it being slightly short, but I actually, but I like activity rather than not having activity. So I'm probably 51, 49, but on the other side, what I, I will go courage just because I like the fact that they were comprehensive in their approach of around casting, you know, a project development funds and also writers. So I think, I think the writer's piece is the one probably that I'm, I'm most interested in. I think it makes a really big difference in terms of the stories that are being told, um, which is why I ended up on courage on that, even though I do think it falls a little bit short. I, I understand your points. I'm, I'm actually kind of agreeing with, with your points anyways. 
Uh, but I probably still fall one percentage over on the the Curry side. Very good. So we end up dropping to a point three three um, batting average. I figured could have been better, but, I, but <laughs> no. But it's but I, I understand your point. I get it was a toss up. It was a toss up for me as well. Any parting thoughts, Jesus? Great episode as always. Uh, no, I mean, look, we we covered a lot. I think in the look the the one the saddest story of all of these is the NHL one. To be mm-hmm. to be honest, because I I do honestly feel bad for all parties involved, right? For this kid Mitchell Miller, who's had his now dream of being a, a NHL player, you know, at least paused for now. We'll see whether or not he has the opportunity to to pick it up somewhere else. Um, and it also sounds like there was a lot of still unfit un, unfinished sort of healing that has happened with the family of this kid that was bullied that went through Agreed. this horrible you know experience and I, I just wish that the the coyotes in this case would have would have you know found a different way to deal with it and to make this an actual positive story rather than one of shaming and and and, and ultimately pushing back on this kid uh and cutting his dream short for something that he did when he was in eighth grade uh which even if he you know, obviously he was wrong when he did that. I just I just really wish there was a different outcome of this. So to me, out of all of it, that's probably the saddest story that we talked about. I'd agree with that, 100%. Let's, uh, let's part on that uh, note of agreement because I have nothing else to add. That was actually very eloquently said. I thank everybody for listening as always. Um, please uh, continue to share the work that we're doing. Let us know how we're doing as well. And we'll see you next time on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix please remember first of all to subscribe and help us to spread the word tell your friends family co-workers and give us a five-star review we're available on apple and google podcasts spotify and everywhere else you get your listening fix and lastly please remember to stop by blackbrown.us the creator of this podcast and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.